You're listening to Switched On Australia, the podcast that tracks the opportunities and challenges of electrifying everything, everywhere. Switched On is brought to you by the publishers of Renew Economy, Australia's best informed, most read website focusing on the green energy transition and is supported by Boundless Earth, using philanthropy, investment and direct advocacy to help Australia become a global force in a decarbonised world. G'day and welcome back to the Switched On Australia podcast. I'm your host, Anne Delaney, and it's great you can join me for our new season of podcasts where we deep dive into the electrification of everything. We've got some terrific guests lined up this season, and uh, they're all people who are leading the charge in our electrification transition. Before we get started, though, I'd just like to take a moment to acknowledge that Switched On is produced on the traditional lands of the Arakwal people, part of the Bundjalung Nation in northern New South Wales. Now, it probably goes without saying that if we're going to electrify millions of households and businesses across the country, we're going to need a whole army of sparkies. And I'm not just talking electricians to come out and install our induction stoves, our heat pumps, solar panels, batteries, EV chargers, and potentially rewire our homes. We're also going to need them to help install the big stuff, the solar farms, the wind farms, the big batteries, and the transmission lines. Currently, we have around 170,000 sparkies in Australia, but we need to ramp that up and fast. Jobs and Skills Australia estimates we'll need an extra 32,000 electricians by 2030 and a whopping 80,000 on top of that by 2050. Now that's no small feat. Michael Wright is the National Secretary of the Electrical Trades Union and he's surprisingly optimistic that we can hit those targets. And he's my guest today on Switched On and he reckons if you're a young climate activist the best way to fight climate change is to become an electrician. More on that later. But I started my discussion with Michael by asking him to give me an overview of how important electricians are in reshaping our renewable future. Absolutely. It's a daunting challenge, but it's also a very exciting challenge because ultimately what we're talking about is the single biggest cost of living reduction in human history. So it's it's an exciting job. But we've had a temporary shortage of electricians in Australia for a bit over 30 years. And with the amount of work that's coming down the pipeline, both in household electrification, business electrification, uh, heavy industry retrofit, and then also, of course, the broader renewables build out, we have uh, something of a problem when it mm. comes to skills. Now, the importance now, the reason we have electricians do this, the reason we have electrical licensing isn't for fun. It's because, at least at the ETU, we're very anti-house fires. We have a policy <laughs> position that we don't like house fires. And yes. there's a, and when you compare... Now, Australia has some of the best electrical licensing laws, electrical safety laws in the world. Uh, and that's partly driven by us having such a humid atmosphere, a humid climate that has mm. led to more instances of, uh, you know, horrible, uh, you know, horrible tragedies. But even given that, you can still see when you look at house fire data, Australia has some of the lowest rates of house fire uh, in the world. Mm. Um, so it is a challenge. Now, last year we had the uh, Jobs and Skills Australia, which is a uh, 
uh, new government sort of think tank almost uh, project that we were going to have a shortage of 35,000 electricians by 2030. So currently we have 170,000 Sparkies in the country. By 2030, to meet all of the demand, uh, you know, all of the electrification work uh, up and down the economy, we would need 205,000. Now that's a um, that's quite a step. Yeah. And then by 2050, another 80,000 on top. And as you said, it's not just the residential space that's going to require electrical workers. Can, can electrical companies that work in the domestic space really compete with all the projects that we're going to need in the, in the construction and the energy sectors, all the big solar farms, the wind farms and big batteries we're going to need and the transmission lines, of course? To be honest, it's the real fear is that, that there will be a great sucking sound of electricians moving out of the residential sector and into the more highly paid commercial construction infrastructure projects, which then puts households at risk because a lot of, you know, people in the community, they just assume if a tradie turns up then they can do the job, that mm. they just trust them. It's a, so if we don't have enough electricians to do the job, the fear is the job will get done every, anyway, but we start seeing those creeping, uh, you know, the creeping up of, uh, dodgy wiring, poorly installed appliances, and then the uh, consequences, sometimes tragic, that can really flow from that. So that's mm. the fear that if anywhere that the shortage is going to be felt most, it's going to be felt most in the residential space. Right, that's interesting because you know, as we as we all know, um, you know, there's this push now to get houses fully electrified. It's going to have a major a major effect on household electrification, uh, the transition for for householders, isn't it? Absolutely, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm scaremongering because this is a good problem to have in a lot of ways. That, that <laughs> there is a shortage that we need more people to go into this skilled occupation, which has at least another 26 years worth of work to get us mm. through to net zero in 2050. And it, like it is, a, it is a great career for people to be coming into. So I don't want to sound like I'm scaremongering. This is not all doom and gloom, but it's actually a massive opportunity for our country. But we do need to be taking some pretty big steps to make sure we've got the people to get this done. So let's talk about some of those steps. What what do you think is needed, Michael? There's um, there's quite a lot uh, that already is being done. But because electricians and electrical workers, so your your lines workers, your cable jointers, come through the vocational education pathway instead of the university pathway, and really for at least the last twenty years vocational education has been the poor cousin in higher education it's so been the, eroded absolutely and the uh you, we see some rtos so an electrical apprentice when they're going through gets to choose an elective just like if you go to uni you get to choose electives there now the problem is that most training centers offer only one elective and that elective is how to install data comms so in 2024 Sorry if I'm dating the episode, but in 2024, we're sitting here where most apprentices are getting trained in how to install a landline instead of getting trained in how to install a battery system, solar, etc., etc. Seriously? Yeah, and I don't mean to denigrate d- data comms. It is an important skill set, but the opportunities to train people in, uh, I- in everything we need for the energy transition from battery systems through to, through to transmission just don't exist. Current, as of mid last year, 
if we talk about transmission just briefly, I think there were 34 apprentice transmission lines workers in training. We were going to get one to come to a conference, but then realized we'd be taking 3% of the trainee workforce off the job. (laughs) And that's that's the workforce that's supposed to wire 12,000 kilometers of... uh, uh, of transmission line around the country. Now you said you don't want to scare me, but you are. <laughs> Look, the um, we are seeing state governments moving on this. We are seeing the federal government moving on this. It, it's always going to be the pace of change, and we also need to broaden out who it is that does apprenticeships. Now, mm. to oversimplify, apprenticeships are done particularly electrical apprentices, are done by, it will commence by 17 to 18 year old boys who have a family or family connection to a trade. So in, a, mm-hmm. in the US, they call it the FBI. You need to have a father, brother, or in-law. <laughs> the, um, now, and that is a very important, like that is, the, that is the basis on which we get to 170,000 electricians today. But if we're going to get to 200 and, uh, 202,000, by 2030 and be, and then more beyond, we're going to need to broaden that pool. Now, the most obvious uh, section of, uh, you know, the most obvious demographic there is that the is women. Where I was going to say women, yeah. 98% of the trade is male, 2% is female. Mm. We are not going to build this energy transition with only 3,400 women sparkies. We, it's just as simple as that. So it's, Making our workplaces uh, more attractive to women also makes them better workplaces in general. Yes. It is sort of a core challenge to this, as well as creating, you know, building out the the training facilities, getting the teachers uh, to actually train as well, because we have a teacher shortage in this country, which doesn't help. Uh, There is a lot to do. And then also once we have the apprentices, Make sure that they get the wraparound support, the mentoring that gives them everything well, they need to get through the four yeah. years. Well, what you're suggesting is actually a, a whole cultural change to be able to pull this off. I mean, it's a, a cultural change in terms of the, the workplace to attract the women to, to work on these sites, obviously. And, you know, it's a cultural change to, to value these workplaces as well. That's right. And... Like at its root, what we're going through is an industrial revolution. We are changing what is powering our society. It would be weird if we didn't have cultural yeah. change in that process as well. Cultures do change. So this is the cultural change that we need. We need to have parents encouraging their daughters to uh, consider the trades. But not just, not just daughters. It's also if your parents went to uni, you probably male or female, don't get encouraged to do a trade. Mm. And uh, I'm talking in, you know, generalizations there, you know, many exceptions. But realizing that, you know, I talk to a lot of young people uh, who are very passionate about taking climate action and always they're going on a university pathway. And I'm like, Mm. please just go and get some pliers, put on some high vis and get an apprenticeship. (laughs) You'll be fighting climate change every day of your life. Every time a Sparky walks out of a house, they're leaving it more energy efficient than when they walked in. This is how we fight climate change. But we don't make we don't make that pitch to young people. Yes, that's a, that's a great way of looking at it. Uh, the, the only problem is, Michael, though, it's a four year apprenticeship for a Sparky. Do, do, do we have that long? 
So my greatest fear with, uh, if anything will stop this transition dead, particularly the household electrification piece, if anything would stop it dead, it would be a spate of house fires, particularly that we operate in a stupidly politicized environment where for some reason this has got into left and right, whereas I'm pretty sure electricity is just positive and negative. But it's <laughs> the, um, so the, the potential for this to be weaponized as some sort of pink bats mark two mm. means that we do need to have that high level of confidence in the people doing the work mm. because ultimately it's protecting households, it's protecting businesses. The timeframes are scary. The scale of the job is is uh is high and that's why it's so important that we really hit that mentoring wraparound services piece for the apprentices because when we have a completion rate that's somewhere in the 60 percent range mm. everyone who falls out might as well have never started we need to be maximizing the people already in the system whilst expanding the overall capacity as well and do we know why they're falling out michael uh so there are a number of reasons uh, cost of living, particularly over the last couple of years, hasn't mm. helped. Apprentices yeah. still, particularly a first and second year apprentice, uh, still remain very low paid. They'll be ahead of their friends who are working at KFC or Macca's or whatever, but they would want to be because they're working at least five days a week. <laughs> so it's, uh, and it's not until the third or fourth years that they really start to pick up. Uh, now the government has introduced a, uh, a great scheme, which can, uh, the um, the new energy apprenticeship payment, which which and that does help. There are you know there are eligibility issues with it, and you know working with government industries, working with government in good faith to try and iron them out. But it's things like that that will help because I've had apprentices come to me and well quit, and talk to them, and they say, well, I had to quit because there was no petrol in the car and I was out of money. So right. How do I get to work? So the cost of living, wages, is a um, is a big problem, and it's also the electrical trade is a hard trade to learn. When you're doing your AC theory, your DC theory, you're learning your maximum demand calculations, there is a lot to it, which means that we need to be providing, we need to be doing better by the students who are in the system in terms of access to tutoring, access to mentoring. Uh, how to juggle work and study because for, for particularly for school leavers it is a very different thing to be out on the job at 6 30 in the morning seven o'clock in the morning every day it's uh there is a there is a cultural adjustment to make there plus then juggling that with uh with study as well mm. these are known problems we know that with better mentoring we know that with better support we can get those completion rates from the you know, mid to low 60s up into the 90s. Some people will, some people will leave because they don't like it. Some people will leave because life gets in the way. But we know that when we do it well, we can get those completion rates well into the 90s, which is where we need to be. Yes. Victoria's relaunched the State Electricity Commission as a public entity, and it's going to support the switch to all electric households and, you know, build a renewable energy workforce that's obviously going to be essential. And one of the things they're doing is a centre for excellence for training. Is that the sort of thing that you think is needed? Precisely that. And when you track skill shortages in Australia, you can really see that 
uh, and, and you know, the at the ETU we're passionate believers in public ownership, but it's unambiguously the case that the old public utilities utilities used to train more. If they projected that they needed ten electricians, they'd put on twenty apprentices, and ten would go out into industry, and ten would stay with the uh, with the utility. With the privatisation down in Victoria and New South Wales, that's really crippled the training um, the training pipeline, if you like. So we have this sort of demographic time bomb coming through that you can see that there is just not as many electrical workers in that sort of age bracket. So with the reintroduction of the SECV, with what Queensland's been doing with um, what's it with QBuild uh, and uh, up there, that there's really and also with um, Energy Queensland, there's just a pipeline of apprentices coming through, probably most of which will stay in that sector. But we need to be getting back to that idea of training more people than we need because they're going to be needed somewhere in the economy. There's no shortage of work in this space for two decades. No. Don't, don't we also have a problem, though, with the, the whole business model of how we um, have set up electricians insofar as most of them in the domestic space, for instance, are small business operators? You know, not a lot of them uh, have the capacity to take on all the apprentices that we're going to need, do they? I think for a lot of Sparkies, it's a point of pride to put on an apprentice more than it is a financial decision. It's a way of, you know, of demonstrating commitment to the trade and training the next generation. So when I spoke, when I talk to you know small business owners who do put on an apprentice, that's the motive I hear. Now there are other things that we can be doing, particularly around group training schemes, to make things easier for small business. Uh, so a group training scheme is is a body that will hire. X, 500 apprentices say, and then they will be responsible for ensuring they get exposure to multiple different industries. So they get a rounded experience during their four years and then put out with different employers during that period. Now, what we see in South Australia, they have the GTO boost scheme. And what that means, it, it, which is basically if allows GTOs to offer apprentices to small business at the same price as if the at the same cost as if the small business was hiring them themselves. It's programs like that that we're going to need to be uh, you know, giving consideration to nationally in terms of boosting the overall number of apprentices because whether it's small business, whether it's uh, small business is, uh, is, a, is, a, is a big part of this, but so is the utility scale solar, uh, utility scale wind, where there are... Um, you know, a, uh, on a solar job, there's typically a peak build period of six to nine months, not four years. So there's a real hesitation by employers in that space to put on apprentices. And that's, but that's true of any construction project. And we've solved that issue when it, in our, well, solved is probably putting it strongly, but we've, we know how to deal with this. So we've been working, pushing government uh, along with others that, in a renewable energy zone, that there will be group trainers appointed who can then, whilst there may only be six months, nine months job, or nine months work on this project, we know that in central West Arana or, uh, or wherever it may be, there are years worth of work to come. So government has a role there in coordinating. So it's not necessarily at a cost to the taxpayer, 
but it's facilitating apprentices to move between these projects so that they they can get the four years that they need and we can get the projects built that uh, that our country needs. Mm. You, you touched on, I suppose, the, the cultural wars um, that could be uh, unleashed if we get this electrification transition wrong. Um, housing supply advocates and some in the property industry and also the federal opposition leader, Peter Dutton, they've all called on the government to open the doors to international electricians and other tradies. How realistic is that as a solution given every country is facing exactly the same situation as what Australia is? Look, I think there's, there's two pieces to that. It's, um, one is uh, precisely as you say, we had a mining boom uh, in Australia back in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, which we sort of slept walked through as a country and brought in a lot of skilled labor from overseas. But that's because that was a mining boom in Australia you know, and admittedly a couple mm. of other countries around the world. Anyone who thinks that they can just send a plane to London or Dublin or uh, Manila or Johannesburg and fill them up with, uh, with, with trained electrical workers, they're dreaming because those people are already in California. They're already in Germany. For some reason, Germany seems to be quite keen to get off gas at the moment. So it's a, there is an, an, this is a global shortage we have in electrical workers. And skilled migration has always been a part of, of, the, of, the, uh, of the sector. And we, we assume that we'll be, continue to be so. But even if you wanted to rely on this, even if you, instead of investing in our own skill system, investing in our own you know, young workers, transitioning workers, the people just aren't there. They're already gone. So if we're going to get this built, we are really going to need to pick up the slack ourselves because we can't rely on the rest of the world to train the workers for this. Mm. I mean, as, as we all transition to our electric homes, fully electric homes, do, do, do you think that we currently have adequate regulation and standards for, for household electricity upgrades? Um, you know, especially when it has to be done at scale? The, um, probably the biggest issue that we see is the need for refresher training. And you might think that that was, this doesn't sound like a radical suggestion, but it's something that in a lot of ways simply doesn't exist at all right now. So if an, if an electrician did an apprenticeship in the, uh, in the 1980s, they probably didn't learn much about Tesla Powerwalls. Uh, <laughs> they didn't learn anything about solar. So as we have workers moving out of you know more the traditional industries you know the resource sector or wherever they may not have been in residential uh homes working ever mm. we need pathways for them to make sure that even though they have the license that they can get this they can just get the update training the reminder the refresher that they can be doing this safely and when we look at the uh the solar rollout the solar roll rollout and in a lot of ways has been a massive success mm. But there is a there is a high level of non-compliance, uh, blessedly not that high when it comes to electrical non-compliance. But there's been a lot of people with cracked roofing, water ingress, all the rest. So that yes. there's clearly the clearly the need to ensure that we are making sure that people's skills uh, remain fresh. Now in Victoria and Tasmania, we already have continuing professional development. Uh, it's slated for rollout in South Australia and 
WA as well. And I think that's going to be a vital part of just making sure that the skilled workforce keeps their skills up. And as for when it comes to the uh, the changes that we see in general, the influx of, uh, of new kit, uh, the role of direct current where we've historically has not been that much of a thing in our grid is uh, is going to need constant review of regulation we you know, we sit on i don't i couldn't even tell you how many australian standards committees uh from dealing with all of this and it is just a never-ending task and it's going to remain that way for at least you know at least to 2050. Uh, just going back to uh, solar, just as an example, I mean, we're all aware of what we call crap solar stories, you know, householders ending up with suboptimal solar panels installed in the wrong place, maybe not wired correctly. I mean, a lot of those panels would have been installed under the small scale renewable energy certificate scheme. And clearly some of the appliances that are going to need to be also installed the heat pumps etc i mean they also might come under that scheme what's what's your view of it and whether or not it should be modified or expanded i think when when it comes to uh to households a very big fan of when the uh when your hot water system dies when your stove when your cooker dies that's the best time to upgrade uh, i think i'm parroting Sol Griffiths at this point because there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of safety protection built into that solar into that solar uh, panel so that even if it is installed wrongly perhaps it's installed by someone who isn't an electrician or uh, they've sent the uh, the apprentice to do it when they shouldn't uh, it does happen we need better compliance we need to ensure that we have a good regulator in each of our states and territories who's making sure that this work is being done by people who have been trained in how to do it. Do we have that though, Michael? Uh, hit and miss, hit and miss. We have strong regulators in Queensland and Victoria, but with the review uh, and, the, um, and the switch of the, uh, of the accreditation schemes for solar installers, I think it is the perfect opportunity to be working on how to improve this because currently the rates of non-conforming uh, installations are way too high and if it's mm. too high in solar well then the fear is it would also be too high in split cycle air conditioning too high in heat pumps etc etc so we do need better regulators this is um the unfortunate thing about electricity is that you can't see it you can't smell it but unfortunately you can touch it it is um but it is obviously as we all know perfectly safe as long as it's uh installed correctly do, do we also need do we also need though better uh, standards minimum efficiency standards and transparent standards for for some some of these newer appliances particularly heat pumps i mean you know trying to compare the efficiency um and the standards of heat pumps actually is isn't that easy for a consumer it's not and by by and large the the ratings are not done in Australia. Uh, it's uh, something that's been outsourced or just we trust the manufacturer. I know that anytime I've dug into this, I've been shocked by how little oversight there is in this space. Uh, mm. People deserve to know that if they're buying their seven star appliance or whatever, that it is what the, it is what the sticker says. Um, it's, uh, and on heat pumps in particular, 
there are which don't even have a star rating yet. No, it's a there is a real, and I don't have a good answer for you why they don't, and I don't have a good answer for you why there is a lack of standards that sit underneath heat pumps because currently uh, there is a broad range of kit that be, can be called heat pump, and it doesn't even have a coherent meaning across throughout the sector. Let's take heat pumps because we're all going to be using them. <laughs> what needs to be done to ensure that we get even just the rollout of, of heat pumps done well and, yeah. that we, and that we don't have that those catastrophes which you've rightfully said could basically set the whole electrification transition backwards. And I think heat pumps are a really discreet issue of themselves there are in a certain sense a new piece of kit that is going to be rolled out to millions of homes and presumably millions of businesses around the country and there is a uh, principally it's a it's a it's plumbing work but again most plumbers in the field never learned how to install a heat pump in their apprenticeship most electricians never learned how to uh, wire up a uh, wire the uh, the heat pump in now these aren't insurmountable challenges it's not like they need to go and do four years of an apprenticeship again but there is there is a bit of a skills gap there that exists and i think it, to be honest the best way to ensure the best compliance check that you, you can ever have is to have a skilled tradesperson who knows what they're doing be able to look at it at the install stage and say hey mate this is not what you bought it's not going to work now we don't want to get to that point we want it to be fixed obviously before then but there is a uh, there is a lack of an accrediting accreditation regime in Australia that probably needs to be brought in. Mm, okay, but it does need to come quickly, surely. Oh, it needs to. It needed to have been like uh, we had our heat pump installed at home. God, I think four years ago now. Like this is not this is not cutting edge technology. This is these have been around a little while now, and we still don't have a uh, uh, compliance regime that really accommodates it. Mm. How are other countries dealing with this need to massively expand our electrical trades? Who, who do you think is doing it well? The United States has really been a bit of a trendsetter in this respect. They have not only in terms of expanding the training facilities, the training centres that are that are on offer for for apprenticeships, but also providing dedicated funding for electric vehicle training, for battery systems training, smart lighting systems, etc. So that with the Inflation Reduction Act, there were dedicated uh, packets of money that were aimed at upskilling the workforce that was that they currently have to be the workforce that they need. And you can see the rollout is being tens of thousands of electric, uh, electricians across America have now done this training and are now safer and better electricians as a result. So the Inflation Reduction Act, as with so many areas, has been a, uh, a bit of a high watermark. Mm. The, um, turning to Europe, it's a, bit harder to, it's a bit harder to judge because it's so many different regime, so many different national regulators that there hasn't been that same coherent well, you can't just talk about the EU as a single body in this respect. Mm. But certainly the, the United Kingdom has been doubling down. Uh, Ireland has been doubling down. Uh, but it would be the United States that we see as being the leaders in the space when it comes to training, training the workforce that they need. 
Mm. You mentioned plumbers earlier. What do you think about the idea of retraining gas plumbers to do some of the electrical installs and upgrades? I think there's a massive oppor- opportunity to to retrain a lot of workers, uh, whether they're whether they're in the trades, whether they're in uh, the resource sector. Uh, on the but when it comes specifically to uh, to plumbers who are gas fitters, the most obvious place for them to be reskilled into is the plumbing trades. There mm. is we are seeing a demand for plumbers that is. In, the increase in demand for plumbers is almost on par with that for electricians. It is, uh, with all of the split cycle air conditioning that's being installed, the need for air, uh, refrigeration technicians. There is, again, no shortage of of, uh, of opportunities in this space. I'm from the electri- electrical trades union, so I talk a lot about electricians, but there, it is not just electricians who are needed here. There are core competencies that are shared between the two, uh, between the two trades, and it's something that we are working on is to provide better pathways for people to move into the into being an electrician, because we do see it as being a career, a job for the future. Mm. Just finally, Michael, I mean, you've you've actually <laughs> you've you've given us some hope, but you've also painted uh, a fairly scary uh, prospect of what we need in a very short period of time. Why are you hopeful that we can get there? The amount of goodwill that I find in industry, throughout industry, gives me a lot of heart, and the amount of goodwill I find. Uh, at the governmental level, whether it's state and territories or the federal government, everyone finally feels, it finally feels as though everyone is pulling in the, in the same direction. Mm-hmm. And then there is such a, uh, as Aussies, there is something really, you know, the tradie is a, core, is a, is a specific part of the Australian identity. So we're not, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. We're trying to get, you know, attract transitioning workers, young workers, into what is a really exciting career that's you know we'll see you working with your hands problem solving outdoors not stuck behind a desk and with decent paying conditions for the rest of your career like this is mm. a like i said earlier this is from a government's perspective spending money on this is a good problem to have because you're pr- creating futures for people when i think about the uh, the the race to net 50 this is an opportunity to make sure that this is one of the vectors by which we will make sure that the community as a whole benefits from the energy transition. We can train up, we can skill up the next generation of, of, of young Australians, the next generation of, us, uh, of our country to build the future we need. And I think that there's going to be a tipping point that when uh, the culture wars that are sort of bubbling around at the moment, when people start to see when it starts to really get out there in the community, how much money you can save by going electric, it's just going to get the ball rolling and it's not going to be able to be stopped. So I do have a lot of confidence. I do have a lot of passion in this space, but it is a big job and we just need to go at it as hard as we can. Michael Wright, thank you so much for joining the Switched On podcast today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And Michael Wright is the National Secretary of the ETU, the Electrical Trades Union. Let's hope all his optimism pays off. 
That's it for Switched On today. Next week on the podcast, we'll be talking about neighbourhood batteries, what they can and can't do, and whether they can realise the promise of true community empowerment. I'm Anne Delaney. Till then, stay switched on. Switched On.